Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Sharing their expertise and life stories. Making a difference one word at a time. Now, here's your host... Vicki St. Clair. And welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Coming up today, does astrology really work? It's a question my second guest is asked all the time. In fact, she's often asked to prove that it works, and she won't. And we'll find out why and what that means with her when she joins us. She's New York-based astrologer Eliza Kelly. Her new book is called Starring You, A Guided Journey Through Astrology. Uh, We're going to take a different guided journey, first of all, with my first guest. He is uh, James Hogan, and um, he's written, uh, this is the second edition of this book. It's called I'm Right and You're an Idiot, The Toxic State of Public Discourse and How to Clean It Up. I think it's an important book right now. Uh, James is uh, the president of Vancouver, uh, Vancouver PR firm Hogan & Associates. He's the past chair of the David Suzuki Foundation Board and founder of the influential website DSmog Blog. He's also served as a member of Shell Global's External Review Committee and is the author of Climate Cover-Up and Do the Right Thing. And uh, again, this book we're talking about today is called I'm Right and You're an Idiot. James Hogan, welcome. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Uh, my pleasure. And um, so you're in the PR business. Our, our, our careers kind of... Uh, have some similarity there. I'm a communication strategist, so of course I straddle the world of PR uh, from time to time. Um, what was it that drove you to um, to go into PR? I well, I, I was in law school uh, with my wife, and we had a son, and not a lot of money, and that was basically how I got into the business, and it just kind of took off. And by the time I was um, graduating from law school, I had uh, the uh, biggest PR firm in Vancouver and it just kind of went on from there yeah and amazing career my guess is that it's changed (laughs) radically over the last five years or so (laughs) it has and that's that's why I wrote this book Um, you know I think all of us can see it how uh, public discourse has become darker there's more kind of unyielding one-sidedness it's more warlike um, I'm in the crisis and issues part of the PR business, and it's always been challenging, but today there's something different going on, mm. and it's almost as if there's people who think that undermining the sort of integrity of the public square itself is a good communications strategy. Yeah, yeah there used to be, uh, well, it's still there, saying, um, you know, there's no such thing as bad publicity, and mo- I would say that most PR people I know from back, you know, five years or so ago, would say that's not true. Bad publicity is bad publicity. <laughs> you don't want right. it. Um, but that seems to be changing. Tell us your thoughts on that. Well, I think that um, some some industries, so you could look at uh, the, you know, the oil and gas industry in, in Canada and the United States, <clears throat> are having a really difficult time, you know, adjusting to the science that shows that they 
their products are warming the climate. So you, you end up in this position where it's challenging to make an argument uh, to protect your reputation and your social license. And so some people, not everyone, but enough, have resorted to these, um, what I, I call Darth Vader PR. And it's basically name-calling, uh, ad hominem attacks on, on people, on, particularly on environmental groups and scientists. <clears throat> and I think, you know, in a way I can understand it. You know, there's a lot of frustration. But what people don't, I think, think about is that there's a long-term effect uh, from this, that if, if people look at, the, at public discourse among experts, and all they see is this uh, shouting and um, misinformation and uh, kind of attacks on the other side, then people turn away and they, they disengage from public discourse. Right. And that's happening on a whole range of issues. Right. And that's, it's bad. It's unhealthy for democracy if we don't know the difference between a fact and a lie. Right. And, you know, I have an issue with the news business right now because so many of our news programs that we used to rely on for news have become what I call talking head shows. They just have, you know, a couple of people from one side with one point of view and a, a, two other people with a different point of view. And it just becomes this slanging match that I can't even stand listening to. Um, so it's very hard to find good news today and to separate fact from fiction. And we've got to be uh, very diligent as consumers of information today. When you're talking about public discourse, tell us what you mean by that, because we're not just talking experts or so-called experts speaking on subjects. You're talking social media, too, right? Yes. So, it, you know, it could be the comment section of your local newspaper, uh, your Facebook uh, page, uh, Twitter. It could also be... Uh, you know, conversations around the water cooler or around the Thanksgiving uh, dinner table. And there's this um, tribalism that has taken over conversations. And it seems that um, more often than not, uh, whose side you're on is more important than the evidence or the facts. And when things get like that, I mean, it's very difficult to have a conversation if just because I'm a conservative or just because I'm a liberal, you dismiss what I say. Uh, that is not healthy, as we all know. And I think we all can see this. And, you know, important social change has happened around Christmas dinner table. Uh, and so we need, we need to be able to disagree more constructively. Right. That's and basically what my book is. Yes, and I want to get into that in, in a moment. I want to talk about, um, or in the, in the second half of our segment here, I want to talk about tribalism because so many books lately, I, I see hundreds of books come across my desk and PR pitches, and so many of them are um, find your tribe, know your tribe, you know, get get to build your tribe, Um I did a show a while ago with um, his name just flew out of my head and I had it in there a second ago. <laughs> the guy who wrote The Perfect Storm and he did a book on tribalism and that was a very good book and uh, made a lot of headlines. But um, 
you say tribalism isn't necessarily a good thing. It can actually be a bad thing. So I want to go a little bit more into that um, and what you mean by um, what you mean by it's not necessarily the solution. Right. So go ahead, please. So, oh, so um, there was I, I interviewed two really interesting people for my book. One of them was a fellow named Jonathan Haidt. And he's a psychologist who studies the psychology of teams. And he said that when people engage in the psychology of a team, open-minded thinking shuts down. He said that uh, he believes that uh, we have um, a, we have righteous minds, and that there, our righteous minds has been de- has been designed by evolution to divide us into uh, teams to unite those teams against other teams, and when that happens, open-mindedness shuts down. And he says it's not because um, some people are good and some people are evil, but we're divided in these highly polarized ways because uh, our minds were designed for this groupish righteousness. And once you start to join the tribe, um, Dan Cahan, this fellow I interviewed at Yale, said it's almost like we want to be misled that the, the values of our team, are uh, they prevail over evidence that contradicts them. And so if we have false beliefs as a group and evidence comes along to show that they're wrong, we tend not to change our beliefs. We adjust the evidence to confirm our beliefs. <clears throat> and that is a particular type of tribalism that's, of course, very negative. I mean, the type of tribalism that has you joining communities for social reasons and political reasons and other reasons can be very good as well, but not when um, people you see people who disagree with you as kind of uh, uh, idiots or evil. So, you know, I think you know we just need to be aware of how tribalism can close our minds. Right. Right. So, um, it, yeah, so I just want to say the the fellow, the journalist I was talking about was Sebastian Younger, and his book was Tribe, and this it was a whole different perspective on tribe and, and how it can actually support us. And I think that's part of the problem in, in tribalism is that we don't question our tribe when sometimes maybe we should question our tribe. Yeah, I think, <clears throat> I mean, some of the, uh, there was an interesting a philosophy professor at Yale that I interviewed, Jason Stanley, and one of the things he said was, remember, you too could unknowingly be under the influence of bias, mm-hmm. that you could be wrong. And I think what happens when we get whipped up into these competing groups is that this um, understanding that we should all have in the back of our minds that we, that we could be wrong disappears. And it becomes a fight for the beliefs of our group. And that is, there's a certain point where that becomes incredibly uh, unhealthy uh, from for democracy. Yes. Yes. And I think if you look at some of the feeds on social media, you know, Twitter, Facebook, that's those are places where I've certainly been. And even on YouTube, um, they... Um, it is a, a it's a them versus us kind of mentality. And if you try to make a reasonable, rational point 
or a reasonable rational point that you believe is reasonable and rational, you get hit back with this with a slam um, because there's there's no reasoning. It's like you're trying to reason with a drunk, basically. Yes. Yeah. Exactly, and that. Name-calling is not a part of healthy public discourse. Ad hominem attacks on people, demonizing people, these types of things are, they undermine public conversation. And so the idea that, I mean, you know, obviously we need free speech, but it has, we, we we want other people to feel heard and respected. And it doesn't matter what side you're on, the right or the left, that is a good objective. I, um, a while back, I, uh, as part of my book, I was involved in this conversation with a, a Vietnamese monk named Thich Nhat Hanh and uh, David Suzuki, who's a Canadian environmentalist. And Thich Nhat Hanh was encouraging environmentalists to, be, to meditate <laughs> so they were calmer and more reasonable. And I said to him, I, I said, you're not suggesting that David Suzuki shouldn't be an advocate, are you? <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, speak the truth, but not to punish. Speak the truth, but not to punish. And I thought, wow, that, I mean, that it was like somebody all punched me in the solar plexus, how powerful that is. That mm. If you could figure out a way to, to say what it is that you stand for and what you think is right, but not in a way that disrespects somebody just because they don't agree with you or they think something else. Right, right. And that's how democracy works. Right. Uh, we need to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk about what psychologists call cognitive dissonance, because that's uh, very prevalent too right now. Um, my guest is James Hogan. His new book is called I'm Right and You're an Idiot, The Toxic State of Public Discourse, and most importantly, How to Clean It Up. We'll be right back. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Parkinson's disease affects as many as one million people in the United States. At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, visit our website, pdf.org, or call us at 800-457-6676. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org. Have fun this boating season and be safe. When you're in open water, it's not enough to be a good swimmer. River currents, ocean riptides, and cold temperatures can quickly sweep you off course and disorient you. Don't rely on swim aids such as water wings or noodles. Everyone should wear a Coast Guard-approved life jacket. Make sure you know CPR and never drink and boat. Learn more about boating safety from the professionals at uscgboating.org. Brought to you by supporters of Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Hi, I'm your host, Smokey Cole Bear. Filling in for Smokey, because after 75 years of... Only you can prevent wildfires. Turns out there's much more to say. Nearly 90% of wildfires are caused by us humans being careless, dumping our used barbecue coals willy-nilly. Guess the song was wrong. We did start the fire. That's why I respect Mother Nature and her trees, whether coniferous or new car scented. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Coming up July 15th on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. We'll take a deep dive into friendship. Why some people have many friends, others just one or two. 
why friendships last or don't, why it's harder to develop deep friendships as you get older, and how to spot the red flags of a toxic relationship before it's too late. Tune in Mondays at noon Pacific and Fridays at 6 a.m. Find more details at conversationslive.net. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Inspiring, innovative, and a great place to advertise. Learn more at conversationslive.net. Bringing good vibes to the Puget Sound and the world. Alternative Talk 1150. And welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. Yes, I want to know when it became not okay to have a difference of opinion. Um, it, I, I was raised to say, you know, it's okay. We have a difference of opinion. It's okay not to agree. Um, but it, we're finding that more and more difficult in today's culture. And my guest uh, is focused on this with his new book, James Hogan. He's, uh, it's called I'm Right and You're Wrong. You're, excuse me, I'm Right and You're an Idiot, The Toxic State of Public Discourse and How to Clean It Up. James, before we went uh, to the break, I said I wanted to talk about cognitive dissonance. Uh, it's a psych- uh, term that psychologists use, um, and it can cause a great, <laughs> great many issues. So would you describe that to us and, and what it is and how it works? Yes. So I inter- I mean, that's kind of central to my book and this whole problem of polluted public discourse. Right. I interviewed this woman. Uh, her name was Carol Tavris. Uh, she's an American psychologist who was at one time the editor of Psychology Today, and she wrote a book called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. And it's basically a book about cognitive dissonance. And she said that <clears throat> anytime we make, uh, we make up our mind about so we make a decision about something, we look for ways immediately. We start to look for ways to re- to reinforce uh, the, our perception that we're correct about what we did, and we try to avoid information that suggests we might have been wrong. She said this is particularly true when you invest uh, sort of public face or money or reputation in whatever decision you're making. And she said it's because of this problem of cognitive dissonance that we engage in um, self-justification. And cognitive dissonance is basically this, uh, it's a a psychological blind spot where we don't want, uh, we think of ourselves as good people, smart people, fair-minded people. And so if we do something stupid or bad or unfair, to other people, we uh, this process of self-justification where we deny it and we we try to avoid this kind of uncomfortable feeling of being terribly wrong or admitting that we've done something terribly wrong. So, so we have this tendency not to want to admit we've made a mistake, particularly a really stupid mistake. Right. And so, <clears throat> what she says that is problematic about this is that. You, the people who do this, a lot of it is unconscious. So it may look from the outside that the other person is just an idiot or something's wrong with them. But because it's unconscious, a lot of the time people aren't even aware that they're doing it. Yeah, and the the interesting thing is what I've read on cognitive dissonance and you know throughout your book too, um, is, is that the more we've invested in our belief and our behavior and our commitment to whatever is happening uh, in supporting it, 
the the harder it is for to say for us to say we've made a mistake and um so it almost gets to a point where you end up being just going along to get along if you will because you can't back down at that stage uh which is right. unfortunate we shouldn't be in we shouldn't put ourselves in that situation and and the thing we were talking about earlier about tribalism uh when your community is part of that cognitive dissonance denial exercise it's even more powerful carol tavaris said that these that the force of self-justification that defends you from this feeling of cognitive dissonance is more powerful than thirst and hunger mm-hmm. and so she said that she said something beautiful she said the greatest danger we face on the planet is not only from bad people doing corrupt evil and bad things but also from good people who justify the bad evil and corrupt things they do in order to preserve their belief that they're good kind ethical people right so it's a so you know if you think that well wait that is actually how people tick it's very difficult to be self-righteous in the face of that yeah you know, to to sort of think of someone as stupid or evil right right and when we look back through history i want to i want to jump into propaganda here because this this has gone on for eternity but when we look back in history um we've always been bombarded with propaganda and when we buy into it it's very hard for us to change our mind about it um you know i remember when i was taking documentary film production at the university of washington this was 20 years ago and part of our curriculum was to review old movies that supposedly were news reports uh, because you know, uh, in the, in the early wars, people you know weren't glued to the television. It was maybe radio they were listening to. Um, but then, so they'd go to the movies to watch these supposed news reports that actually were being made in Hollywood. <laughs> and you'd see supposedly a German um, escapee uh, when she was really a farmer in Ohio. Um, so we've been exposed to it all along here, but let's talk about how we start to identify propaganda, because I tell people all the time, you've got to look at not just who made the film, but who paid for the film and who funded the film and which organizations funded it and which ones are behind that. Let's talk about propaganda because, you know, in PR, um, I'm sure you've, you've had some experience in that at some level, right? Yes. And one of the things that I've learned over the years is that the real heart of propaganda isn't misinformation. Misinformation is part of it. Right. The real, the real core of propaganda is um, division, dividing people up against other people. Because if you manage to do that, a whole bunch of false ideas can come along with it. And so it's a much more powerful strategy. Um, so today what I see in propaganda is not just the misinformation, there's that in, in space, but there's this attempt to divide people and, um, and to undermine people's confidence in public discourse itself. So there's no such thing as facts, everybody's biased, you can't, everybody's just in it for themselves, there's no... You know, there's no such thing as science. <laughs> so the, the arbiters of, of differences in society, like the law 
universities, science, the media, etc., that sort of mediate between differing points of view. When they're attacked and people's confidence in them is undermined, that is a that is it's one of the goals of propaganda. But it's a very powerful. It's much more powerful than simply lying to someone. Right. And in particular, to demean a certain category of people, uh, because then that dehumanizes them and it becomes yes. okay to uh, trash them, which is happening a lot in, in, at, at very high levels these days, unfortunately. So I, we're almost at the end of our segment, and I must get to this because we want to look at how we can start turning this around in our own lives. It can be very difficult when you know, you're close friends with somebody who's screaming at you <laughs> that you're an idiot because you don't believe what they believe. So how do we start turning things around so we, uh, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of people say they've lost very close friends lately uh, because of the divide in, in the population, and it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, and, you know, I, I have to say right at the very beginning of this is that this is an unbelievably difficult um, question, uh, and... Part of the reason that it's difficult is that we've developed these these habits, bad habits of public discourse, and we've taken things for granted, I think, for too long. Uh, and I think this, you know, most of us have this tendency to, to, to think that just because we're correct on the evidence and we're right on the values around a position that we hold, that there's a, that that's almost permission to really step out there in the way that we uh, present uh, what we believe and um, argue against what someone else believes. We, see, we tend to be a lot better at uh, angry debate right. than we are about dialogue. And so my advice to people is to look for ways uh, to, to, to understand the difference between a two-way conversation and a one-way conversation, the difference between debate and dialogue. And the, I interviewed the Dalai Lama, and he, he, at the end of the interview, he put his finger on my forehead and he said, you know, we like to think the Western mind is more sophisticated, but in Tibet we go with the heart. Maybe if um, we take the Western mind and the Tibetan heart together, we can be more successful what we need is more warm-heartedness. Right. And I, I think that there's a huge amount of wisdom in that, that the idea of uh, sometimes just listening to other people and and just really listening, even if they say something bitter or if they say something that's totally incorrect, just breathing deeply, being aware of you know how you get triggered emotionally and how they get triggered emotionally, and trying to basically look for ways to find things that you agree with the right. other person on right. before you get into the area where you where you disagree. I mean, we don't want to become milk toasty about things. More than anything, people need to be speaking up. But we have to get better at how we do that. Right. And try and stay calm and rational. And that was perfect, James, because I actually wanted to end with that uh, quote that you have in the book from the Dalai Lama on warm heartedness. So um, I appreciate you throwing that in there. That was great. And uh, the book is called I'm Right and You're an Idiot, The Toxic State of Public Discourse and How to Clean It Up. There's a lot more in here that we didn't have time to discuss today. I know you interviewed a lot of uh, great thinkers 
uh, for this book, James. So appreciate you being with us. And l- please tell us where listeners can find you online. Yeah, if you just um, if you just Google "I'm right and you're an idiot," you'll find the book website with a link to uh, booksellers. That's true. <laughs> All right, thank you, James Hagen. Appreciate you being with us. Thank you. Please stay, please stay with us. When we come back, we'll be joined by Eliza Kelly. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. Let's see if I... I guess that... <sighs> this just isn't working. Knowing you have a great idea for a book is one thing. Writing it, another. So what's stopping you? Maybe you can't find time. Maybe you don't know where to begin. Maybe you wrote a couple of chapters, then disappeared down a rabbit hole. Or maybe you'd rather someone else write it for you. Partnering with the right coach or ghostwriter can make all the difference between talking about your book and finishing your book. As an award-winning writer and strategic consultant, Vicki St. Clair's storytelling credits span from business, health, self-help, and memoir to New York Times and USA Today best-selling anthologies. Vicki partners with people just like you at the exact level you need. Whether you need a little encouragement, editorial guidance, or full-blown ghostwriting and consulting services. If you're serious about telling the story you know is inside you, stop procrastinating. Let's get your story down on paper. Contact Vicki today. Email Vicki at VickiStClair.com or call 1-800-495-7617. See more about Vicki and her work at VickiStClair.com. My mother was very familiar with her neighborhood, but one day she stopped at the stop sign and she wasn't even really sure where she was at. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Hi everyone, Al Roker here. As a guy with his own catchphrase, I appreciate that after 75 years, Smokey's only said, Only you can prevent wildfires. But I'm filling in because there's a lot more to report. Like when it's dry or windy. Be careful burning yard waste, because wildfires can even start in your neck of the woods. Go to SmokeyBear.com to learn more about wildfire prevention. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to the Academy of Canine Behavior in Bothell, we cover the world of animals. This week, July 7th, it's Shelter Rescue Sanctuary and anything that helps our animal friends Sunday. We'll check on Missy's rescue and her foster network and see how she's doing with that. We'll follow up with Laura and Seattle Dogs Homeless Program. Plus, we'll chat with New Spirit Journal's Krista Gibson from the Nanda Institute of Living Yoga. Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning. 9 a.m. to noon right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150. Looking for unconditional love, an exercise buddy, or a great listener? Paws has the dog or cat of your dreams just waiting to meet you. We've made thousands of perfect matches since 1967 because everyone needs a warm, safe place to call home. Find out more today at paws.org or call 425-787-2500. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Innovative business leaders know to advertise here. Learn how affordable it is at conversationslive.net. You found us. Maybe you've been guided to listen. Alternative Talk 1150. 
And welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. You are listening to Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. My next guest coming up right now is Eliza Kelly. She's a New York City-based astrologer and writer. She's the author of two books, and uh, her work has regularly appeared in Cosmopolitan, Allure, Vogue, and many others, including HuffPost. Uh, in her private practice, Eliza hosts monthly workshops and provides chart reading for clientele. And uh, she's written a lovely new book. It's an introductory kind of uh, journey here. It's called Starring You, A Guided Journey Through Astrology. Eliza Kelly, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And I should say you're joining us via Skype today. And uh, for that, we're grateful. So um, this is really when I saw this book, you know, um, I have a lot of books come across my desk and it just caught my eye. Um, I'm not particularly into astrology myself, but I, st- I sat there and I started flicking through it and just found it really interesting. It's for, based for younger readers, right? Or, or somebody with very little knowledge of astrology. That's right. I, I, um, I wrote this with the intention of writing it for my younger self. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean someone who is 13 or 14. I do believe that this book is for everyone, but I wanted to create a workbook and an activity-based experience that was going to help the reader put themselves in the center of astrology. I find that a lot of the time, astrology books can be very didactic or pedantic, um, and I wanted to create something that really uplifted the reader and enabled them to feel the incredible multidimensionality of who they are. Mm. To me, that is the best part of astrology. It's it's a practice in empathy for self and for other, um, in recognizing that we are such complex beings with so much going on. And definitely young readers could always, you know, need extra reinforcement that they are okay to be exactly who they are, but that applies to everyone. Right. So I want to go back to something you just said. It's a, ultimately astrology is a practice in empathy. I've uh, seen you write about that. Tell us what you mean by that. Well, for when we use astrology, what we're doing is we're basically using all of these different symbols and archetypes to carve out the uh, complexity of self. So we're saying that, yes, we may externalize and act a certain way, but that's not necessarily going to be how we always feel. And maybe the communication that we use isn't going to be always how we want to take action. And maybe what we think we want on a first date isn't what is going to provide us with long-term sustainability. And all of those in astrology have spaces. And we can look at those individually um, and understand how each one of those components is functioning. And by putting all of that together, we understand that we are these very complex beings who have past, present, and future, who are informed by society, informed by our experience. Um, and we can hopefully provide and, and award ourselves a little bit of compassion for being these complex beings, take some of the pressure off. And in turn, then, of course, 
when we find that love for ourselves, it's much easier for find that love for other people as well. Right, right. So I said at the top of the hour when I was telling listeners who was on the show today that you're often asked to prove that astrology works and you won't. So t- <laughs> <laughs> tell us why. It's one of those questions, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's to me, you know, one of the one of the ways that I sort of describe it is that you you wouldn't you wouldn't a surgeon would not tell an abstract painter how to depict the human body. You know, it just doesn't make sense. It's not that the surgeon is wrong and it's not that the painter is wrong. They're just different representations of uh, of the same concept. And for astrology, it is a very specific language. It's a language that is mythological, symbolic, iconographic. It's about storytelling and understanding who we are I apologize for the sirens. That's I can't okay. escape them no New, matter where New I York go. City, York. Right? Yes. New York City, right? New York City. That's how you know I'm telling the truth. <laughs> and we're <laughs> live, right? <laughs> so I, I find that it's, you know, it's sort of irrelevant. Um, whether astrology, whether it's actually the moon that is influencing your emotions or you are just becoming much more comfortable communicating and understanding your internal experiences is sort of irrelevant, right? What matters is that when we have this lens to understand ourselves and to be kind and compassionate for ourselves, it's that works. You know, that's all the information that we need to know that astrology has meaning and is profoundly important in people's lives. Right. And you say the true significance is is what we take from it, that the, what it symbolizes to each individual. Yes, exactly. And one of my, you know, a, an amazing scholar who I've studied a lot and who also informs a lot of um, 20th century astrology is Joseph Campbell. And one of the philosophies that he has is that sometimes in order for us to understand our own realities, we need to separate ourselves just ever so slightly to be able to look at a situation with enough distance to weigh in on it um, in a helpful way that is actually going to substantiate change. Um, That's what storytelling is all about. That's what folklore is all about and fairy tales. It's just slightly changing our perspective in order to be able to see our reality from a different vantage, which then gives us insight in how to best cope with difficult situations. Yeah, that connects back to my first guest when we're talking about public discourse and people having such uh, very different viewpoints on on things. We just need to sometimes step back and and take a a more objective, uh, disconnected look at things. Yes, absolutely. So um, I read this morning that we're going to have two eclipses this month, and I wanted to talk about the significance of those in astrology. I hear them come up. I've never personally really paid much attention to them. Um, but, but what is the significance from an astrological point of view, Elisa? So from an astrological point of view, um, eclipses eclipses generate massive change and huge shifts as we move towards our greater destiny. Um, to think of how radical an eclipse is, it's important to think of the, the, lo- the solar and the lunar cycles and how our ancient ancestors, how we as humans are so dependent on the consistency of these. Um, our 
ancient ancestors, our, the, you know, our, the original astrologers and stargazers used the moon's consistent 28-day cycle to inform when we were going to travel, when we were going to have night markets, when we were going to stay in. And likewise, the sun and its placement in the sky informed when we were growing crops, when we were taking action on things, when we were moving around, forming colonies, etc. You know, it was a huge deal. But then every so often, something very odd happened. And either the sun was suddenly obstructed in the middle of day by the moon, or the moon, which we could depend on shining this silver, um, beautiful tone that we know and love, suddenly appeared red and rusty colored, which was really freaky and scary. So eclipses in the past were these really jarring, um, frightening things, really. And our ancient ancestors thought that this was end days. You know, we thought that this was a sign of the apocalypse coming. We know that that's not what eclipses are showing us and foreshadowing anymore. But even still, because eclipses are these massive um, transformations of the solar and lunar cycle, we believe from an astrological perspective that they basically speed up time by perpetuating the inevitable. So they take the current cycle as we know it, you know, the moon symbolizing the ebbs and flows of our emotions, the sun representing our ego and sense of self, and dials both of those up to 11 and um, pushes us onto our karmic pathway with incredible velocity. So for instance, if you were thinking, okay, I think I'm going to leave my job maybe in the next eight months. I just want to make sure that I have my savings together and everything set before I make that move. Eclipses would just get it taken care of right then and there. They're going to only speed up what's already going to happen, but even still that might feel very uh, surprising or unsettling as it's occurring because you weren't anticipating it. Hmm, that's so interesting. Now, do, does the speeding up start on the day of the eclipse, does it start speeding up leading up to it? Eclipse season is three weeks prior to the eclipse and three weeks after. Hmm. So in totality, it's it's about, it's a little over two months um, that we're going to be in eclipse season. So we're already in it right now. Um, but tomorrow is the solar eclipse. And then on July 16th is going to be the lunar eclipse. So oftentimes events are going to really be triggered on these occasions. So the, the action is going to be occurring this week and the week of the 16th. But this whole period right now, you're currently in eclipse season. So we're experiencing that. Okay, good to know. We need to take a quick break. We'll be right back. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. My guest is Aliza Kelly and her book is called Starring You. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Have fun this boating season and be safe. When you're in open water, it's not enough to be a good swimmer. River currents, ocean riptides, and cold temperatures can quickly sweep you off course and disorient you. Don't rely on swim aids such as water wings or noodles. Everyone should wear a Coast Guard-approved life jacket. Make sure you know CPR and never drink and boat. Learn more about boating safety from the professionals at USCGboating.com. 
www.conversationslive.org. Brought to you by supporters of Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Coming up July 15th on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, we'll take a deep dive into friendship. Why some people have many friends, others just one or two. Why friendships last or don't. Why it's harder to develop deep friendships as you get older. And how to spot the red flags of a toxic relationship before it's too late. Tune in Mondays at noon Pacific and Fridays at 6 a.m. Find more details at conversationslive.net. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Ordinary people leading extraordinary lives. Advertise. Learn more at conversationslive.net. Talk radio for the heart and soul. Alternative Talk 1150. And welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Now I know why this show is whizzing by today, because I was just talking with Elisa in the break and uh, about how things have felt so sped up the last couple of weeks. So this is all making perfect sense, Elisa. <laughs> Elisa Kelly is my guest. Starring You is her book. It's a guided journey through astrology. So I have a question that I want to ask you. Uh, you'd ask me what star sign I am. I'm Sagittarius. Um, but I know I have Sagittarian friends who are very my sister for one was similar in some ways but so different in other ways and people do love to lump you into you know oh you're a Sagittarian or you're a Libran whatever um we're polar opposites on some some levels why is that well the sun sign um which is what are when we say well what's your sign we're often referring to the sun the which means the position of the sun at your exact moment of birth um, is one of the many, many, many components that make up your astrological profile. So some interesting history here is that prior to 1930, your sun sign was not really even considered, uh, it, it would not have been what you would have said if somebody asked you about your astrology profile. You would have shared with someone actually your rising sign or your ascendant. Um, your sun sign, which is considered your outward expression and your ego, and it, I sort of think of it as like the car that you're using to drive through the world, um, was not given nearly as much attention as it is now. But in 1930, uh, Pluto was discovered. And in a very similar time to what we're experiencing today, there was a huge spirituality movement and revival. And horoscopes became... Uh, and uh, in, the horoscopes were introduced to the newspaper at that time, but because most people don't know the time that they were born and the location and as well as the date, and most people just know the date that they were born, it was easier to write sun sign horoscopes than it was to write the complicated birth chart analyses that we do as astrologers. So sun sign horoscopes, um, are really just the tip of the iceberg. It really is just one small fraction, one tiny piece of this puzzle that is your astrological fingerprint. Mm, interesting. So once I have a friend that just sprung to mind, I'm thinking she will not date uh, certain, she won't date Scorpio. Sorry, Eric, I know Eric's a Scorpio, but she, you probably wouldn't want to date her anyway. <laughs> I wasn't looking, but <laughs> But she will not date Scorpio men. And I look at her and I'm like, but that's ridiculous. But, but is it ridiculous? I mean, you, you tell us what you think of that. 
Yes, that's ridiculous. That is ridiculous. That's not fair at all. That is the exact opposite of astrology being a practice in empathy. <laughs> um, in fact, you know, I genuinely believe that anyone can get along with um, anyone else. And the reason for that is because within each person is the 360 degree zodiac wheel. So you actually, Vicky, as a Sagittarius, and you, Eric, as a Scorpio, have all of the other signs existing within you. It's just a matter of where they exist. What do they trigger? What do those energies bring out for you? Um, and how might someone else's energy positively or negatively impact you? Once you understand and can start to see, okay, this person affects me this way, and therefore I'm going to sort of reverse engineer this to figure out how I can show up and be the best version of myself or not be triggered by this person or, um, or tell them how I'm experiencing this or find, you know, the different to navigate how to manage that relationship is really just a matter of figuring out how you perceive others. And then in turn, the fact that people are going to also have those perceptions of you, um, compatibility is always a two way street. We don't want to know just you know, just one person, how does one person affect you, right? We have, we have this question that comes up a lot, like I'm a Sagittarius, who should I be with? Well, there's also the other side of it as well. How are the people that you're with um, experiencing your energy? And when we look at compatibility, we want to see not just how person A feels about person B, but how person B also feels about person A in turn. Right, right. What star sign are you? Do you mind sharing? Oh, no, I'm a Leo. So of course, I don't mind. Ah, so Leo's, and as I understand, have big hearts. Is that correct? Yes, I, I would like to think that we do. In medical astrology, Leo does rule the heart and the spine. So that checks out with traditional astrology as well. Yeah. And just flipping through the book here while we're talking, and um, you, you give a, a an, an overview of each uh, sun sign, star sign, uh, if you will, and then our compatibility, our co-stars, if you will, which I think is really cool. It'd be really fun for somebody to work through that. So um, I bet you had fun putting this book together. I did. Yeah, it was um, it really I mean, speaking of the Leo heart, it really did come from my heart. Um, I'm I'm very grateful that every single component of this book is something that I uh, made a decision on. Um, down to where the activities are on the page, um, the borders of the activity boxes, every single detail is something that I put a lot of attention and consideration into because I wanted this book to be accessible, fun, relatable, and then most importantly, I wanted it to be genuine. And I, uh, you know, we are living in a moment right now with astrology becoming so popular and having such a resurgence that a lot of big companies are also either already or going to begin to capitalize on the spirituality movement. Um, and that's why it's really important to remember that we can't Amazon prime our spirituality and the people who are <laughs> helping guide us through these more mystical understandings of self really are putting their heart and soul into their products. And Starring You is, is definitely a, an extension of my practice and my heart and the way that I would like to positively influence people's lives through astrology. Mm, interesting. 
I have one very quick question I want to squeeze in. We've only got like 30 seconds here. How does a full moon really affect people? Big, big question, 30 seconds. I, <laughs> I am going to say 100% yes. We know that full moons um, affect the tides and water and humans are comprised of majority water. So we know that we are somehow being influenced. What that means might be werewolf, might not be werewolf, but somehow we are on a physiological level being impacted by the moon. Mm. Well, the book is lovely. It's called Starring You, A Guided Journey Through Astrology. And it's good for young readers and anyone like me who doesn't really know very much about the planets. You go into a lot of detail, a little of the history here. It's, it's quite fascinating. And as far as the full moon, I, I many times have looked up at the moon when I've had uh, certain things happen, issues, whatever going on. And I look up and see, oh, it's a full moon. That explains it. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, the moon definitely shows up. You know, it really does know how to make an appearance. Right. So uh, listeners can find uh, your uh, Aliza Kelly is the best place to reach you. Aliza, is that correct? Yes. Um, follow me on Instagram. It's where I am the most active um, at Aliza Kelly. I also am at alizakelly.com. That's A-L-I-Z-A-K-E-L-L-Y. Um, and the book is available on Amazon, um, where you can't prime your spirituality, but you can prime my book. <laughs> Perfect. Aliza, thank you so much for being with us. And that brings us right to the end of our show. Uh, we will be back next week with an, a new live show. Uh, you can find me at conversationslive.net and uh, on Twitter at Vicky St. Clair, Facebook at Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. Until next week, uh, live well, live strong. Thanks for being with us. Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and then flame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience, and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicki's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations Live. Live.net. That's conversationslive.net today.